morning, church. Happy Father's Day to all my dads out there. I'm a dad. I've got a, got a four-year-old, Levi. He's over there. Um, got a two-year-old little girl and a seven-month-old girl. And so I call this stage of fatherhood that I'm in by one word, tired. <laughs> uh, if I had a dollar for every yawn I've done today, I would be a rich man. Um, they, they were so excited about Father's Day, they decided to wake me up in the middle of the night. So uh, happy Father's Day to all y'all out there. So we are in uh, week two of a three-week series on the resurrection titled Risen, Unshakable Faith in the Resurrection. We are working verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 15. This is um, the greatest chapter in all the Bible on the resurrection, on the doctrine of the resurrection. It is very deep. It is very rich, and it takes a lot of brain power to work and process through it. So we're going to do some more thinking today as we did uh, last week, but, but this, this week will be a little more typical in its format of what we expect as we work just verse by verse through um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 34. So the title of today's sermon is The Resurrection of the Dead, and the subtitle is We Won't Be Angels, We Won't Be Dirt. So it's kind of silly, tongue-in-cheek, but what I mean by that is there's kind of this false notion um, in many Christian uh, people's minds, uh, but, but also in the world, that when we die, we become angels. You, you might have heard it where oh, someone died, you say, oh, heaven gained a, a new angel. Um, but that's, that's not true. We, we won't be angels. We will take on flesh once again in the resurrection, as we'll see today. And then another false idea is that we... Uh, turn into dirt. I, I've, I've witnessed to a family member before who rejects Christ, and that's what he believes, that there is nothing after death. It's, we cease to exist, and we just dissolve into the dust from which we came. That is, is false as well. And so what we're examining today is really answering the question, what happens after we die? What happens after we die? And so as we study the resurrection of the dead, we inevitably have to face our mortality, that all of us in here will die someday, and all of the people that we love will die. And it's inevitable, as we study the resurrection, to not consider death, okay? Uh, Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, in Ecclesiastes, he says, the wise think about death often, but the fool only thinks about having a good time. And so if we want to be wise, which I hope you do, then it would be great for us to consider our death. And so that's what we are going to do today. I, I have come face to face with death. When I was 19, it was 2014, um, I get a call from my brother that my sister has been life flighted to Nashville um, and that I need to come. He just has a bad feeling and I need to come. So I leave Knoxville, I make it to Nashville, um, some family have visited her. She was in the ICU, and we go back there, me and him, only two people at a time, and um, we're just told that it's not good. The condition's not good. Um, so we get back there, and it's not. Um, swollen with fluids, tubes all over. Uh, it, was, it was a terrible experience, and we're trying to give her hope, so we're singing. We're praying. We're uh, encouraging her, um, telling her about her kids, that they're doing well. And so we leave, and we go... Uh, stay uh, the night, and then we come back 
and um, then just all chaos ensues. And only two people were allowed there, back there at a time, but everybody rushes back there. We're pacing the halls, praying, asking for God to heal. Um, she dies multiple times, and uh, the final one, we, me and my brother, my sister-in-law, uh, Hallie, who, who we were dating at the time, we just start praying, God, you, you raised Lazarus from the dead. You've raised many people from the dead. We know you have the power in you to do this. Please, God, raise her from the dead. But he doesn't answer our prayers. And so we go into that room. Um, we cast our bodies over hers. And my brother leads us in a prayer of thanksgiving for her life. And then the real suffering begins um, as you prepare for the funeral. Um, as people visit you and they pray and they cry and they bring you food. And you, you make plans. And then... You're at the funeral, you're at the graveside, and you face an open grave. Uh, many of you have maybe had an experience like this. Um, one of the most, is the most painful experience I've ever had in my life. Losing someone you love, there, there's nothing more painful than that. If you're sick, you can get better. But to lose someone you love is to not be able to make any more memories. All you have to cling to is the past. And it's painful. But as a Christian, we can face these things differently. I do not know how I would have gotten through it if I did not have hope in the resurrection. So I describe suffering as a Christian in this way. Painful hope. Painful hope. Painful because we cannot escape pain in this life. There's suffering, there's evil, there's pain. We cannot escape it. But as a Christian who hopes in the resurrection, we can face it with hope. And that's what we are going to gain today. If there is no life after death, then life is meaningless, and we have no hope. I have great pity for those who do not believe in the resurrection, because it would be a morbid existence to believe that life ends here, that this is the best that we get. So, is there life after death? If so, how can we know this? The Corinthian church was denying that there was a resurrection of the dead. Okay, they were more spiritual than our time, so their error was that the soul lives on. Uh, the soul was a good thing, but the flesh was a bad thing, and it would just remain in the ground. So, so kind of like we would become angels. The error of our day and many in our world is that there is no soul that lives on, and the flesh remains in the ground to be dirt. Paul's argument here in this text applies to both of these errors. And so here's our big idea, three main points that we're going to hang our hat on. Okay, the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith, provides assurance of our own resurrection, and calls us to live righteously with an eternal perspective. So our first point, believing in the resurrection is essential. What we have here, starting at verse 12, is, is Paul using a form of argument called reductio ad absurdum. This is Latin, but it simply means to prove the falsity of one claim by showing that its logical conclusions are absurd or contradictory. Or simply put in layman's term, what you believe is dumb, because if you believe this, then you need to believe that. And we all know you ain't going to believe that. That's how I would state it. Um, this is a helpful tool in your evangelistic conversations. My favorite apologist, Francis Schaeffer, this is what he did. He would listen. He would ask questions. He would learn what someone believes, and then he would take that and he'd say, okay, so if this is what you believe, then, then you need to believe this. And this, if you believe this, you need to believe this, and you need to believe this. Surely you don't believe this. 
and he would get them to see the absurdity of their worldview and then he would bring in the gospel and the truth and show them that this has the greatest logical conclusion this is true and so we can do that in our conversations and that's what paul does here in verse 12 he starts with now okay now is pointing us back to what he just talked about what he's about to argue is based on what he just argued so if you were here last week what was that argument that jesus is alive so everything that he is about to argue is based on that premise that jesus is alive if jesus is not alive then everything he's about to say is meaningless so he just gave evidence of verse 1 through 11 of the resurrection of jesus based on eyewitness testimony and he said now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead so he's saying jesus is alive and you corinthian church are saying you believe this okay you believe this and then he questions how some of them can deny the resurrection of the dead when the resurrection of Christ is a central tenet of their faith. And he's likely quoting something he heard one of them say when he said, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is their claim. I believe Jesus rose from the dead, but there is no resurrection of the dead people. Verse 13 is continuing and supporting this previous argument. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So that's the crux of it. So if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then, then how can Jesus have been raised from the dead? He was a man. So to rehash this, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, yet claim that there's no resurrection of the dead, then your beliefs are contradictory. They both can't be true. Either the dead can be raised, or you believe something completely different. Paul intensifies this argument, and he turns up the heat. He states that, there is, that if there is no resurrection, then there are severe consequences. And he lists seven of these consequences. The first one says the apostles' preaching is in vain. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. Vain means devoid of intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. It's empty. What Paul has devoted his life to is meaningless if the resurrection is not true. He should not be trusted to speak if this is not true. His words mean nothing. The second consequence is that the Corinthians believe in vain. He says, and so is your faith. They should just throw away their Christianity if they actually believe this. Because what they believe is not trustworthy then. The third consequence, he says, the apostles are now misrepresenting Jesus, therefore proving to be liars. Therefore, we should not trust the scriptures. He says, moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. The fourth consequence is that the Corinthians' faith is worthless. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless this is different than the word vain it's similar though um, he's saying that their faith is of, of no use it's it's empty it's fruitless it's powerless it, it lacks no truth no substance there's no point the fifth consequence is that the corinthians then are still in their sins he says you are still in your sins the reality that christ's death was an effective substitute for sins lies in the resurrection from the dead. Okay, if there is no resurrection, there is no hope for life with God in heaven. No hope for forgiveness of sins. The power of the cross comes through the power of the resurrection. The sixth consequence, believers who have died have perished. 
those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So this supports the previous claim I made, that if there is no resurrection, there's no hope for life in heaven. Our bodies just be good for fertilizer. And the last consequence, he says, believers are of all people the most to be pitied if their hope in Christ is only for this life. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Why? Because what they believe and how they live would be based on a lie. Pity means deserving sympathy for one's pathetic condition. So if there is no resurrection, there is one word for all of us in here and why we're here. We are pathetic. Paul is explicitly tying the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of believers, demonstrating that one cannot exist without the other. Believing in the resurrection is essential. And there are dire consequences for rejecting it. But guess what? We don't have to face those consequences. Why? Because we believe. Because we have faith in the resurrection. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Because he rose, we have certainty that our sins are forgiven. Because he rose, he lives and represents us before God. Seated at his right hand. Because he rose and defeated death, we know we also will be raised. Christ's resurrection guarantees both his promises to us and his authority to make them happen. Okay, we can trust him. And we must take him at his word and believe all that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. Jesus is alive. And church, we will join him. That gives us a lot of hope. Two, believing in the resurrection provides assurance. Paul is teaching us that therefore, since Christ has been raised, those who believe in him can know with full assurance that he will raise those who belong to him. He will defeat death and bring his believers into his kingdom where he will reign and rule forever as the perfect and good king. And how do we know this? Because Christ is the first fruits. Verse 20, he says, but as it is written, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is an agriculture term. Um, we're not in this world anymore. We don't necessarily need to. We have grocery stores. So, so this language about first fruits and, and when the scripture talks about agricultural terms kind of get lost to us. But a first fruits is, is the season's first produce. It's, it's that first fruit of the harvest. It signals what's about to come, that there's about to be a successful harvest if you have those first fruits. Okay, this year we planted a lot of cherry tomatoes in our garden. Levi loves cherry tomatoes when they're warm from the sun and you go pick them off and you eat them. Oh, it's so good. And he, he loves them. If we didn't see any blooms right now and we didn't see any little bitty green tomatoes starting to form, we would know that those plants were bad, that we could expect there not to be a harvest. Okay, but when we see those flowers blooming and those little bitty green balls starting to form, we know that more ripe tomatoes are about to come. It's a foretaste of that delicious harvest that we will reap. Similarly, Christ is the first fruits of dead believers in that he is the first in a long line of those who have died but will be resurrected in the future. God resurrected Christ first and later he will resurrect the dead believers. His resurrection points to our resurrection and it assures that we will be raised from the dead. He then draws this parallel between Adam, the first man, and Christ. He says, verse 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. 
For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Okay, he briefly mentions this very deep truth of Adam being the covenantal head of the old humanity and Christ being the covenantal head of the new humanity. He's assuming they know what he's talking about here, okay? His, his audience kind of knows this language, but, but we're not going to make that assumption because this language isn't very familiar with us. We don't speak like this anymore. Okay, he's supporting verse 20 by saying that Christ is the first fruits of dead believers because death came by a man, Adam, and the resurrection of the dead also comes by a man, Christ. But quickly before we really uh, explain this, I need to point out that verse 22 is not teaching universalism. People have taken this verse out of context and they try to make it say that every single person is going to be in heaven with Jesus someday. If that's the case, then there's no point in evangelism. The Great Commission is meaningless. If you look into the grammatical structure, you will find that the word all is not modifying what comes after it, but what comes before it. He's saying that all who are in Adam will die and all that are in Christ will be made alive. So to be in Adam means to be human. Every human, without exception, begins here. Therefore, all humans die. Okay, those who repent of their sins and believe the gospel are in Christ. Therefore, all those who believe will be raised. Adam disobeyed God with the result that those in him die. Christ obeyed God perfectly with the result that those in him live. Adam's sin was imputed to us. Thereby, therefore, by our nature, we are sinners. We are now sinful by nature. We're not, we don't sin. We're not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature. But by faith, Christ's righteousness, his perfection was imputed to us. Therefore, by a new nature, we are made righteous. So that at that great day when we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, when he looks at us, he doesn't see the sin of Adam. He doesn't see our sin. Instead, he sees the perfection of Christ. It's like Jesus is just standing in front of us in the judgment, and he's just looking at Jesus. He doesn't even see us. Man, that's good news. Jesus is the new and better Adam. What Adam could not do, Christ did. That's what we just sang about. So that now those who are in Christ follow him in all things, including resurrection including glorified bodies, including perfection, including no desire for sin anymore, including no disease, including no death. How amazing is that? We get that through faith. And if you were anything like me, you want it now. Man, I don't want to struggle with sin anymore. I don't know about you, but I hate my sin. I don't want those desires in me anymore. I don't want to be sick. I don't want other people to be sick. I don't want to die. Like, I'm not looking forward to death. I want this now. I want perfection and glory and a perfect body now. But this comes in God's timing. We have to wait for this. He makes a brief clarification about when this will happen. In verse 23, he says, it's at his coming. Okay, so our resurrection will happen when that sky cracks open and the wake-up call of that trumpet sounds and we see Jesus returning. It'll be like that alarm clock every morning that wakes you up, except we hate that sound, right? But in this time, that trumpet, when it sounds, man, we are going to be so happy. We're going to hop right back up and we're going to be like, yes, I'm, I'm ready, Jesus. I'm ready. 
And after we're risen, then the end comes. That's what he says here. So here's the order of God making all things new. Christ enters the world, God in the flesh. He dies for sin. He's buried. He's raised from the dead in a new body, a glorified body, a perfect body. And then he ascends to seat at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the Father's timing for when he sends Christ back the second time. And at his return, the dead will be raised. Out of the grave they rose. And the new heavens and the new earth will be created. Okay, I love the language of the rest of this section. Anytime the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, I get fired up. Like I'm already starting to get fired up up here. I get excited. This is unfortunately a neglected doctrine in a lot of church pulpits. Yet it was the primary thing Jesus talked about. If you were to look, do a word study, see, what did Jesus talk about more than anything? It was the kingdom of God. And you could summarize all the overarching theme of Scripture into that one phrase, the kingdom of God. It's important. So let's look at it. Verse 24, he says, When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. So Christ must reign because God has ordained it to be so. That's what he says. He must reign. And what God has said cannot change. So no matter what suffering you are going through, no matter what sin you are enduring, Jesus will return and make all things new. Why? Because the Father ordained it, and it must be so. Man, that's where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the promises of God's Word. Christ's return eliminates all the powers that oppose God, all the enemies, all the evil, at his resurrection, he began the destruction of Satan and all his dominion. At the resurrection of the dead, all of Satan's power will be broken. And it says that he's going to be cast into the burning lake of fire. And while not all the enemies were named in this text, one was. There's a greater enemy than Satan. Satan is not equal with God. It's not like this grand battle between God and Satan. Satan's on a leash. He's a created being. There's only one God. He has all authority. He has all power. And he's telling us that there's a final enemy, a greater enemy. It's like a video game. There's that final boss, and this is it. He says it's death. And if you read Revelation, he's going to tell us that he's going to throw death into that same lake of fire that he's throwing Satan into. Death is every man's enemy. None can escape it. But when believers are finally resurrected from the dead, the destruction of death will be complete. That's what my hope is in, not that... You know, there's some angel in heaven that's watching over me. It's in the promises of God's word that death is going to be defeated. The language used here underscores this cosmic scope of Christ's victory over death. It's not just the earth. It's everywhere. This whole universe is his. It's not just individuals, but the entire creation Jesus is going to rule over. The phrase God may be all in all suggests this future reality where God's reign is fully realized and unopposed. No enemies. No evil, no Satan, no demons, no struggle with sin. There will be no enemies. All will be unopposed. A perfect world ruled by a perfect king. Man, I want that. Jesus will then, it says, submit himself 
to the Father, in order that the Father may be supreme over all creation. Okay, this is not saying that Christ is not equal with the Father. That's heresy. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There is one God, three distinct persons who have different functions. Okay, this verse is not about the nature of Christ. It's about the mission of Christ, where he is willingly obeying the Father's will. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's he pray? Father, not what my will be done, but yours. And he asks us to pray that prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Verse 27 is quoting Psalm 110.1. He's speaking about this promise of great victory given to the descendant of David. That's what Psalm 110 is about. This great victory promise to David's descendant. And Paul applies this psalm to Christ. Since he is the great and final son to sit on David's throne in Christ, all the promises to David and his family come to full realization in Christ. So when you read the Psalms, when you read the Old Testament, man, it's pointing to Jesus. All of that's going to come true in Christ. Ultimately, this was the original order, though, which Adam was called to carry out. But what happened? He failed. But Christ being the second Adam, fulfills this completely, showing himself to be the supreme king of creation. Now God will ultimately reign supreme, and we will follow him perfectly. Y'all, that is what the kingdom of God is about, and that's only scratching the surface of it. Because the resurrection of Christ has been accomplished, and the resurrection of believers has been promised, we can face this life with great hope. With great hope. We can live in confidence, allowing this truth to encourage us to greater zeal for God's mission. Because what did he tell us to pray? That God's kingdom would come where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom of God and this great promise of what Jesus is going to do should compel us to invite people into this kingdom. To invite them in. Man, this isn't just something for the future. It's not just to, just to give us this hope like we just sit on it and it gives us a good feeling. Believe is, believing this changes things now. It impacts our lives here. Believing in the resurrection demands righteous living. Verse 29 is kind of weird. Okay, we're just going to take it separate from itself before we really get into Paul's conclusion here with application. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like, what? what are you talking about, Paul? Okay, Paul uses the practice of baptism for the dead, whether, whether it's hypothetical or actual, to question why it would be done if the dead aren't raised. Okay, so there's a lot of mystery to this verse. Nobody fully knows what Paul is referring to here. There's not really much out there. There's kind of only guesses. But the most supported option is that Paul was addressing what the church was practicing. He wasn't condoning it and saying, like, this is okay, we should start baptizing people for people who are dead. Like, he's not saying that. He's just showing them that their actions aren't matching up with their beliefs. They claim Christ is raised, but believers won't be, yet they're baptizing people on behalf of the dead. He's saying, like, this, this is pointless. This is weird based on your beliefs about the resurrection. Like, I don't get it, Corinthian church. And there's, there's not too much more to say here besides that, that this is false teaching. And like, we, we shouldn't practice this, and, and we don't practice this. You know, we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by baptism. And people who die are especially not saved by someone being baptized as their representative. 
Okay, but before we move on, I do want to highlight one quick thing. Um, there are people who actually do practice this. And it's the, Jesus, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They use this verse in particular to support their practice of this today, where they baptize, they do proxy baptism for people who have died who didn't get the chance to be baptized. Um, members of the LDS Church, if you're not familiar with that, uh, that we, we often call them Mormons. And we're going to be commissioning a group to Salt Lake City um, after this service, and they're going to go and minister and evangelize Mormons. Okay, Mormonism is a false religion. And Mormons are not Christians. Okay, when you talk to them, they'll say they're Christians. But Mormons and true followers of Christ have a very similar vocabulary, but they use different dictionaries. Okay, we use a lot of the same words, like Christ, salvation, saved, baptism. But when they use that word and when we use that word, they have very different definitions. Okay, for instance... The most important one is they say they believe in Jesus. They believe he died on the cross for sins and that he rose from the dead. But they believe in a different Jesus than who we believe in. A Jesus made in the mind of Joseph Smith. Not a Jesus made in the mind of God. Who wasn't made in the mind of God. He just is. Jesus is. And, and he's revealed knowledge about him in the scripture. Now they have something else that they get their understanding of Christ from. And it's not the same Jesus. These are two different people. The Jesus they believe in is not God in the flesh. He is subordinate to God. He was actually made by God. That's what they say. They also believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And they believe that we too can become divine like Jesus and rule our own world. Okay, the LDS church is not a true church. They are dead in their sins and we need to evangelize them. So if they come knocking on your door, do not run them off. You would be in sin. Obey the Great Commission. Invite them in. They will be glad to sit down at your table and eat with you and share the gospel with them. Listen first. Listen to them. Hear from them. They want to be heard. Say, okay, can I share now? And share the true gospel with them and ask them questions. That's all I want to say. That was just a little side note about this verse. Um, so let's pick up verse 30. Let's bring this home. Paul is going to give us a few points of application here. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul has been through the ringer for his belief in the resurrection. Okay, he has endured extreme physical hardship for the sake of making Christ known. Here's just some of the things he's endured. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He received 39 lashes um, three times. He, he received 39 lashes four times. Uh, three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and day out at sea, likely wading in the water. He's been robbed. He's had sleepless nights. He went days without food and water. He was left cold and naked alone. And these are just a few things that he shared in one light little section of Scripture. All of this he endured for believing in the resurrection. Why would Paul endure these things if the resurrection were not true? Why would he go through this if he had not seen the living Christ? If God does not resurrect believers, then God did not resurrect Christ. That's what we just learned. And if this is the case, then Paul has wasted his life by enduring all of this pain for no reason. It would make more sense, he's saying, to party like a Christian, like a non-Christian hedonist than to live for Christ. 
It's like all this stuff I'm doing is meaningless. I should just go get drunk and just go gouge myself with food and just, just indulge my pleasures. But that's not what he does because he believes in the resurrection. It was the truth of the resurrection, the promise of Paul's future resurrection that gave him the strength and the hope to endure the trials. And that's what gives us hope. Like I said, this, this hope doesn't come in anything out there. It comes from the resurrection of Jesus and his promise to us that we will be raised. And so we can face suffering with hope. In verse 33 and 34, we'll bring it home. Paul brings us to our conclusion with three points and then a final rebuke that he's given to the Corinthian church. Okay, he's saying, don't let the resurrection deniers fool you. Sober up and come back to your senses regarding the resurrection. Stop sinning by saying God won't resurrect believers. And then he gives a rebuke. Shame on you. Here's what he says. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. So the first command, he says, don't be fooled by those who deny the resurrection. He's likely quoting some Greek poet here. Since those who deny the resurrection have not, have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they're bad companions. He's saying, who will corrupt you morally. We must not let such people negatively influence us. We need the body of Christ to be the primary influence in our life, not those who deny the resurrection. Command two, he says, come to your senses and stop believing lies. This is directed at those who say there's no resurrection of the dead and to those who are being influenced by them. Well, we could just take it as, man, we need to believe the word. We need to be in the word. We need to trust the word and not believe the lies of the world. Command three, he says, stop sinning by tolerating this false teaching about the resurrection and by pursuing these immoral behaviors. It's kind of giving us insight here. If you reject Christianity, if you are around those who reject Christianity, oftentimes worldliness creeps into your life. He's saying stop sinning by tolerating these false ideas that are now influencing your life. And then he gives the rebuke. He says, shame on you. You know better, church. That's what he's saying. By not denying the resurrection, you're denying Christ. Therefore, he's saying you're still in your sins. You're still in your sins. And that should put the fear of God in them. But here's the good news. Okay. Although Paul gives this rebuke of shame, believing the gospel takes away all shame. That's the good news. Whatever shame you may be feeling for your sin, for your life, trusting in Christ takes that shame away. Trusting his finished work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, believing that brings you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that offer is yours. Do you believe that? Will you take it up? Will you put behind your life as a resurrection denier and believe the truth? If you do, you will live. You will be raised one day. And church, this truth about our resurrection should bring us great comfort. It should bring us great hope. And this reality of the kingdom of God that is entering into this world and making all things new should spur us on to mission. It should spur us on to joy, to hope, to peace in the midst of, of this crazy world that we're living in. No matter how bad this world seems to get, Jesus is the king, and he is returning, and he will make all things new. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
we've really only scratched the surface of this chapter. God, every word that you've written is inspired by an infinite mind. We could, we could dig and we could dig and we could dig into your word and only scratch the surface for as long as we live. What a treasure chest it is. God, thank you for this teaching on the resurrection. Thank you for this teaching on the kingdom that we can look to, place our hope in, to endure the trials of this life. Thank you for the assurance that you give us in the resurrection that someday you will raise us from the dead with new bodies. God, we long for that day, Jesus. This world is so broken. It's so marred by, the, by that sin of Adam that has now spread all throughout the world, has even affa- affected creation, even affected the plants. God, the sin has just entangled itself in everything around us, including our hearts. But we believe your word that you will rid the world from this. Oh God, we long for that day. We long for your return, Jesus. We desire, deeply, deeply desire within our hearts that there would be no more death, that there would be no more suffering, that there would be no more sin. God, I hate my sin. I feel like Paul, Romans 7, where he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. God, that's me. I want you to rid me of that. I want you to rid us from those desires. God, we want you, Jesus, and ultimately we want you to return. We want our King to return, to rightfully sit on the throne of his creation when that day when we can look at his face, when we can touch his skin and bow at his feet. Oh God, I long for that day. Jesus, please come. Please come, Jesus. Amen.